Thank you for joining us for another Hagley History Hangout. My name is Gregory Hargreaves, Program Officer in the Hagley Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society at the Hagley Museum and Library in Wilmington, Delaware. You know, during these History Hangouts, we like to bring you some of the great research being done out of the collections in the Hagley Library, especially work being done by folks who have received support in the form of research grants and fellowships from the Hagley Center. One such scholar is joining me today. Matthew O'Neill is a PhD candidate the University of Georgia, and we'll be discussing his dissertation project titled Home and Hell in Appalachia, the Great Migration and the Making of Sundown Towns in the Mountain South. Matt, thanks for joining me today. Thanks. Good to be here, Craig. Looking forward to it. Thank you. Well, let's talk about your project. What is it that you're researching and writing about? Yeah, so it's essentially a uh, social history of the Great Migration in Appalachia. Um, and I'm focusing mainly on the first phase of the Great Migration, which um, starts during World War I and continues um, a bit afterwards with a focus on um, how some of these communities that experience waves of the Great Migration choose to reject those migrants and become what are called sundown towns, which are essentially places where only white people can live and work and I'm comparing those places with um, other communities that are very much connected um, within, in my case, the coal economy, uh, other communities that looked much more diverse and um, sort of fostered uh, just a more diverse racial and ethnic uh, population. So that's kind of the elevator speech. Yeah. Um, well, could you perhaps unpack this phrase sundown town? Yeah. Um, sounds like it's an artifact of racial segregation, but uh, what else does it mean? Right. So the scholar that wrote the book on sundown towns, he actually just passed away. James Lowen, who was a sociologist, um, he defines it as a place that is all white on purpose. Um, and most of these places were um, outside of the South, especially outside of the Deep South. I mean, if you just think about uh, the demographic makeup of the South, it would be hard to have a sundown town in a place like Black Belt, Alabama, or uh, the Delta in Mississippi, just because there are so many African-Americans that live there. But um, he traces it, I think he, he sees the origins of it really um, when any kind of worker comes in that does not look like the people that already live there. So he sees this phenomenon happening in California um, in the 1880s with uh, Chinese immigrants that come to take jobs on the railroad. And those are some of the uh, first examples of uh, communities pushing out those undesired workers. But again, most of the time you'll see these um, in places outside of the traditional South, or in my case, uh, Kentucky is very much a border state. Um, it's right on the line between uh, Midwest and South. It's in some ways sort of the gateway uh, to the South, but also to the industrial Midwest and also to the Northeast. So um, any place where um, the population looks um, sort of all one way and experiences a wave of migration, um, you could see this happen. And sort of my... Uh, my task is to figure out why it happens in some places and not in others. Um, and so I look at, you know, what are the work that these people are doing? How is that shaping how they view other workers, other uh, racialized workers? How are they viewing those? 
Uh, how are they organizing their communities? Um, what social groups are they involved in? All of these things, I think, kind of uh, contribute to their worldview and how they would view other people that, that come in uh, to sometimes take their jobs or work alongside them. It could kind of depend on the scenario, uh, but that's sort of the task that I undertake. Well, I think uh, that presents it neatly in a nutshell, but uh, before we move on, what specifically is the significance of the, the word or the phrase sundown town? Is oh, it meant right. to be taken literally? Yeah, so uh, the sort of the use of the phrase sundown town, you know, it's all sort of word of mouth um, and rumor would sort of spread the word about mm. these places. And the phrase that would be uttered uh, to someone passing through town, I, I mean, I know a man personally who uh, grew up in Lynch, Kentucky, which is one of the towns that I look at, which was a U.S. steel company town. And they were passing through Corbin on the way to someplace else and stopped for gas. And uh, the gas attendant told them to be out of town before the sun went down. So uh, the insinuation is you can pass through, uh, you could do a little bit of business in these places, but um, you probably don't work there and you certainly don't live there. Um, mm. People could work, you know, in the case of Corbin, one of the towns that I, I, fo I focus on, um, there were black employees of some of the hotels in town, porters and things like that, but they made their homes elsewhere in sort of surrounding communities. Um, and in some cases, there are rumors of signs also being posted sort of at the edge of these communities that say, you know, racial slur, comma, don't let the sun set on you. So again, just that uh, understanding that you'll keep moving on and, and will not make your home in that place. The implicit threat being your personal safety will be uh, threatened exactly. uh, should, you, should you choose to linger. Yes, mm. yes. And um, also, uh, perhaps while we're sort of defining terms, uh, what for those who might be unfamiliar, what is the Great Migration? Yeah, so the Great Migration is a period that sees um, the U.S. undergo a dramatic sort of demographic shift. Um, I don't have the exact numbers, but I think if you look in 1910, um, about, you know, the population of African-Americans in the U.S., over 90 percent live in the traditional Deep South states. Yeah. So yeah. South Carolina, uh, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, sort of that um, the old plantation South, really. Um, but by 1970, that number is more like 50-50. Hmm. Um, and so this process starts again with World War One. And, you know, you think about, uh, we often think, I think, uh, more so this happening with World War II, but uh, soldiers go overseas, those jobs become available. And for the first time, um, essentially employers start looking for new sources of labor. And one of those places is uh, the Deep South. Uh, so there are labor agents that go all through uh, places like Alabama and uh, promise uh, black workers, higher wages, better lives away from the more like rigid Jim Crow system. And so you see that process start to happen in World War One, and uh, it happens again in World War Two. So uh, people are moving from, again, places in the Deep South to uh, Detroit, to Chicago, to Pittsburgh, to New York, anywhere that there are an abundance of jobs available that they can take. Um, but also to places that you wouldn't expect, like in Appalachia. Um, and it's all sort of tied together to this uh, industrial 
economy that's very much spurred on by the war effort. Uh, so any, anywhere there are, are jobs available, people are, are moving to. Um, and that makes the country look a lot different when it's all said and done. And so how then do these processes intersect in your study area in Kentucky? Yeah, so um, the two communities that I'm really interested in uh, comparing, uh, one is Corbin, Kentucky, which was a very important railroad hub for the Louisville-Nashville Railroad, which uh, was really where all the coal from places like Harlan County, which folks might be familiar with, where there's a ton of coal production, all of it had to first be shipped to Corbin before it could go to other gateways. So Cincinnati, a lot of the coal was going to uh, South Chicago, where International Harvester and later U.S. Steel has uh, these giant steel production plants. And so I'm comparing uh, the railroad hub with a place called Lynch, Kentucky, which was the U.S. Steel Company town. And um, it was built in 1917 by U.S. Steel because they knew that there was uh, a tremendous amount of uh, coal and stuff that was really good for uh, coking coal, just very high quality. Uh, so they made the purchase in 1917, built up a company town that at one point was the biggest and most state-of-the-art company town in the world. It was home to over 10,000 people of various uh, races, ethnicities, all of that. Um, and it, again, it's, it's this process that links them and it's World War I that kind of jumpstarts the process and causes U.S. Steel to look for a new source of fuel, which creates the company town, but it also has ramifications for Corbin because you must expand the rail yard to accommodate this, all of this new output of coal, and that sees all these new jobs created in the construction industry, which, again, brings workers up. They interact with white railroad workers, and in the case of Corbin, a conflict ensues and they're pushed out and it becomes a sundown town. So really um, it's that same process sort of affecting both places, but one ends up looking very different than the other. When you dig in uh, on the social history, yeah, what explanations do you find that uh, help, uh, that you might argue, help to shape that different, those different outcomes? Yeah, well, as I sort of uh, hinted at earlier, I think it has a lot to do with um, people's everyday lives, really. Um, the kind of work that you do, uh, who you interact with at work, the kind of unions you join. A lot of the railroad unions were uh, lily white and excluded African-Americans, ex especially like uh, the railroad brotherhood. So engineers, firemen, conductors, trainmen, sort of the more specialized unions were, were more exclusionary, which I think sort of shaped how they viewed um, African-Americans. Um, as opposed to, you know, the United Mine Workers Union, which organized black, white, uh, southern and eastern Europeans all in the same locals. Um, and so the work you do matters, uh, the kind of unions you join matter, uh, but also the employer as well. Uh, employers could sort of exacerbate or attempt to exacerbate those racial tensions that they knew existed uh, through things like uh, wage differentials, you know, uh, or just simply importing strike breakers that were uh, of a certain race or, or nationality. Um, so all those things I think matter, um, which I think is a, is a easier way to sort of understand that. I think sometimes we think of racial conflict as sort of 
maybe not inevitable, but it just says like a bug in the system, but it's nothing is inevitable. There are reasons why things happen and they happen in very specific contexts. Uh, and it's all very localized, at least in the stuff that I, that I study. So I try to, to drill down to the very uh, basic sort of everyday experience and connect that to larger ideas about what do people think about race at this time, uh, especially in the context of the Great Migration, which is uh, very new and, and uh, very drastic, um, and in the context of the war as well, um, and especially that red summer period of 1919, when industries were really kind of scaling back all of that wartime uh, upscaling that they had been doing. So there's a conversation over, you know, who's going to have that job uh, when the war ends? What, what is America going to look like post-World War I? Who deserves uh, to live and work where they choose? Those, those kinds of things. Now, what collections in the Hagley Library did you access to help you uncover this story? Yeah, so mainly I looked at uh, the Penn Virginia Corporation records, uh, which, as you might expect, have a lot of connections between Pennsylvania and Virginia. Um, it started, I believe it was incorporated in the 1880s as the Virginia Coal and Iron Company. Um, and it ended up um, being, the, the records themselves end up holding a lot of different uh, companies that were started by these Pennsylvania families that ended up intermarrying and, and being interrelated. And within that collection, I found um, the records of a corporation called the Wentz Corporation, which was a Philadelphia-based uh, corporation of one of these families that basically served as uh, a landholding company for the family. Um, the Wentz family was very much involved in southwestern Virginia a place called Stonega. They had a, a company town there as well as um, other company towns. They had the Stonega Coke and Coal Company. Uh, but as they were involved down there, uh, they started buying up coal lands just across the border in eastern Kentucky. So these Wentz Corporation records show how this land uh, transfers hands over many years. Oftentimes, lawyers are very involved in this. How do we, they're, they're really, uh, you know, uh, haggling with these people to get them to sell them the land so that they can have an entire tract of, I think it ends up being 14,000 acres in Harlan County that they know is good quality coal land and they, and they hold it and they eventually sell it in 1917 to, uh, to us steel for uh, a few million dollars. I think it was maybe a million and a half at the time, which is of course much different now, but um, I remember, uh, looking in the sources and, and seeing conversations back and forth between um, a figure, Daniel Wentz, who was based in Philadelphia and his lawyers on the ground talking about this purchase process. And uh, one of the lawyers talks about sitting in on the meeting that actually where they drew up the, the contract and signed the check. And he said it was the, the biggest check he had ever seen uh, for that sort of transfer of land. Um, so I thought that was pretty interesting, but um, that was basically the, the collection I looked at, uh, the Wentz Corporation and other businesses that were connected um, and sort of get a look at how they were managing their coal company was, was insightful because some of those records were sort of hard to find. Like uh, U.S. Steel is kind of famously, uh, you know, tight-lipped or they, they don't let many people into their archives to look at uh, 
their records. So just to get a look at what a coal company did to recruit workers and manage them was, was good too. And then at the end, I ended up looking at some of the Pennsylvania Railroad, which uh, that was just my last week there, but that, that collection is huge and, and very interesting. And how are you able to use these materials to advance your project? Yeah, so they helped me, I think, put it in um, sort of a larger national context. I, I think uh, I described my project as a social history, but I, I think what pairs well with that just to make these connections is sort of a business and economic element to it. So to look at why uh, U.S. Steel wanted these coal lands and how that process happens um, and just to kind of make that connection of it's all tied to World War One, it happens at this at this specific time for a very specific reason, and people are all tied up in that. You know, I mean, people are very much connected to the resources that they extract and uh, the resources that the coal companies want and U.S. Steel wants. So it kind of, I think, it helps to tell a more complete story. It helps to sort of round out that that context of why it happened where it did. Do you have any particularly exciting document that you uncovered in the archives that was perhaps a smoking gun or something that really stuck in your mind? Yeah, there were a lot. Um, the one that I mentioned was was kind of interesting, just talking about uh, you had never seen so much money, you know. Uh, others from the Wentz Corporation, when they're buying up a lot of this coal land, it ends up being owned by a lot of uh, like New York tycoon types. And one of the families that owned a certain parcel of land that they were trying to get so they could square off their title was actually uh, related to Citizen Genet from uh, older, an older period of American history. And this, um, this man passed away right after they got his land title. And, and in a letter, uh, one of the lawyers remarks to, again, uh, Daniel Wentz, like, I had no idea we were dealing with such a blue blood, you know. And so just uh, that was kind of interesting. Um, and then there was one in uh, the, Pennsylvania, the Pennsylvania Railroad collection where it was a letter from um, an African-American veteran who had served in World War I and had uh, come back and his job had been claimed by someone else. And he essentially wrote a letter to the Pennsylvania Railroad saying, um, you know, I served my time in the war. I served this country. And I deserve my job back. You know, um, I've done my part. Why can't you fulfill um, your side of the agreement? Which I thought was very interesting because um, you often hear those uh, sort of broad uh, political statements like, uh, you know, we return fighting, which was something that W.E.B. Du Bois said in the crisis. But to see, um, you know, a, a railroad worker that had actually served in France come home and experience that and wrote the letter and actually to see him. Uh, write that out was, was pretty cool. But tons of great stuff. I mean, I know I'm forgetting some others too. So. What were some of the implications for the trajectory of these two towns, Corbin and Lynch, having all diverged and reacted differently to um, the Great Migration? Yeah, well, you know, they have very different uh, historical legacies, uh, really, for the rest of the 20th century, Corbin becomes known uh, throughout the South, but also other parts of the country as a place where black people are not welcome. Um, you know, the word spreads through 
just family networks, but also people traveling that, uh, you know, don't stop for gas in Corbin, Kentucky. Uh, keep it moving. It's, it's one of these places where you're not welcome. Um, Would that but, be noted in the Green Book, perhaps? You know, um, it's very much that same idea, but I don't, the sources for the Green Book that I've looked at mm-hmm. do not detail anything about Corbin. Uh, I'll get into that a little bit more, but what I've seen uh, does not mention that. Um, but on the other hand, uh, Lynch becomes a place of uh, really almost of like ancestral heritage for a lot of African-American families. They, uh, of course, in the 60s, when U.S. Steel starts to kind of cut back on their domestic production, Lynch becomes essentially a shell of its former self. And so Eastern Kentucky uh, is just sort of one stop along the Great Migration where mm-hmm. uh, some of these families end up moving to places like Cleveland or uh, Chicago, Detroit. Some move back down south. I mean, it's just, again, one stop along the Great Migration. But um, every Memorial Day weekend, um, African-American families with roots in Lynch return home for a memorial, for a reunion, I should say, every mm-hmm. Memorial Day weekend. Um, and so that idea is really interesting to me that just down the road, you have a place that is a sundown town where that kind of thing doesn't exist. And oftentimes to get to Lynch, you have to pass through Corbin just because of uh, how Corbin is on the interstate. And it kind of uh, it mirrors that uh, gateway into and out of the coal fields that existed on the railroad. Um, so very different historical legacies, even to this day. And I wonder whether there are perhaps broader implications um, for the national scene based on your findings. Yeah, I think so. I I think that, uh, again, it can kind of help us understand why these things happen. Um, Mm -hmm. It's not inevitable. Um, There are certain things that can make people more amenable to living with people of a different race or ethnicity. Um, And so it's important to kind of understand what creates sort of the powder keg that could easily uh, result in, in racial violence. Um, and then I think too, trying to understand that whole World War One period, especially 1919 Red Summer. Um, I mean, I think back on the summer of 2020, which uh, looked a lot different as far as um, the nature of the violence and sort of uh, all the details of it. But a lot of people compared it, you know, sort of the, Basic comparison was 1968, a lot of comparisons there, but also that whole red summer wave of violence where it just seemed like things were happening one after another. I mean, it was almost like, what's going to happen next, you know? Um, So I think trying to understand that period and putting it in context with all of the other uh, racial and class uh, episodes of violence that are happening in that period is important. Mm -hmm. Um, And then also, I think it's it's a lesson in how history can uh, reveal things that we didn't know about the past or maybe we were misguided about. I mean, there's lots of myths that spring up around this incident uh, in Corbin about why it happened. Uh, You know, there's rumors at the time that uh, there was actually a rape that occurred that resulted in a lynching, but that's not the case. And we know this uh, because there was an investigation where testimonies were taken. Um, And so being able to take sort of the myth about something that happened and all of the sort of misguided notions uh, about the past and be able to uh, 
pair that with solid research and say, no, this is what actually happened um, and sort of provide that window into it, I think is, is a useful thing to do. And, and it can provide, I think, people a way forward um, to, to get past some of the, the lies and myths about it um, and actually examine the truth. Well, Matt, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Uh, what a great project. Thank you, Greg. Yeah, I really enjoyed my time at the Hagley and uh, enjoyed chatting with you today. Oh, that's great. And for the audience, if you would like more Hagley History Hangouts, more information on the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society at the Hagley Museum and Library, join us online at hagley.org. That's H-A-G-L-E-Y dot O-R-G. Don't be a stranger.